शर्म I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame and many more taboos. It was all like so much fire and brimstone and like it's haram, it's haram, it's haram, it's haram, which in Arabic means forbidden, right? So it's not just like don't do it, it's like it's haram. It's time we heard the voices of real South Asian women, not just those we see in Bollywood or in mainstream Western media. It's time we had a real voice, a loud and proud and strong voice. And then when you deviate from that in any way, then suddenly you're a sinner and you push to the boundaries and there's no space for you to be a good Muslim and not marry a Muslim man, you know? I've invited some incredible women to join me around my virtual kitchen table and put the world to rights. In this episode, I speak to BBC radio presenter, activist, writer, speaker and spoken word artist Salma Elvardani. Salma describes herself as half Egyptian, half Irish and a little bit Desi. She speaks about looking for belonging within those identities. Salma and I had such a lovely chat over some delicious homemade cake. We opened up to each other about belonging or not belonging. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of domestic violence that some people may find disturbing. I wondered if we could start by talking a little bit about what you say about you being a little bit daisy. A little bit daisy. <laughs> what is a little bit daisy? Um, so my, I was born in Egypt, half Egyptian, half Irish. My mother's Irish. My father is Egyptian. And then we moved to England when I was a baby. My parents split up and I came to England when I was about four. Um, and when I was six, my mum remarried and she married a Pakistani man. And he has been my dad all my life. I would never call him my stepdad. He raised me, clothed me, fed me, uh, because I always say it takes more than genetics to be a father. And I was raised Desi, like I was raised in Newcastle-upon-Tyne with my Irish mother and my Desi dad, right? And like every Sunday we'd go to my grandma's, my grandma and granddad's who lived next to my auntie and all my cousins. Like every Sunday we'd all have dinner together, me, three cousins, my uncle, my auntie, uh, my grandma, my granddad. And then when my mum would travel for work, I would stay there with my cousins because my auntie has three daughters. So we all are of a similar age. So, so much of my experience growing up was Dissy, right? It wasn't Irish, you know? Yeah, my mum would sing like Irish folk songs to me. And it wasn't Egypt because obviously my mum's not Egyptian. So while she would tell us stories of Egypt, it wasn't the same and, and we went over there. So my primary, you know, cultural experience growing up was Dissy, was eating Desi food and eating my grandma's javel and salon and and growing up watching all the Bollywood films that my cousins watched and going to weddings and saris and lengas and shalvakamis and like that was just my formative cultural experience and age like for ages growing up I would kind of be like oh well I'm half Egyptian half Irish and I would never really say that I was Desi because I was like oh I don't think all of the Desis think I'm Desi and I don't know how to then say no but actually this was so much and if there's no blood tie can you claim it right there's so many questions um 
And then it's only in this last year that I was like, fuck it. I absolutely identify with that culture. And my dad's dissy and I grew up like that. And who is anyone to tell me that I'm not? And isn't identity something that you self-identify with? Uh, so it's only in the last year that I put it publicly and I was like, no, I'm actually going to claim this really loudly and obviously because it's true for me. And I, I don't think you can take it out of me. Like I can't watch Kuchu Chote and not feel like huge, like nostalgia and sentimentality and want to cry or Kupi Kuchu Kupi or think about watching it with my cut. Like I, there's so much that is so intrinsically laced in my idea of who I am. Uh, so maybe I'm a lot desi, I know, as opposed to a little bit, I don't know, but there's there's definitely desi. There's thing. definitely desi in you. <laughs> yeah, and I'll say things sometimes to my other desi friend and she'll be like, God, you're such a desi. <laughs> <laughs> That's the highest compliment. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely there. So how do you navigate between that and your Irish self and your Egyptian self? With a lot of tears, I think. <laughs> just cry and eat cake and look at the moon and go like who am I it has been a struggle it's been a real difficult struggle because I think you can find belonging and identity easier when people claim you but when no one's claiming you you're suddenly on the outside aren't you and you're knocking on everyone's door being like hey is there any room at the inn is there any room at the inn and there's never room at the inn right (laughs) um so it has been really hard. And I think it's been one of the biggest struggles of my life and one of the greatest sadnesses of my life. This idea of not belonging anywhere. And am I Irish or am I Egyptian or am I Desi? Like, and what am I today? Depending on what circle I'm in or am I like a Geordie lass? Cause I grew up in Newcastle and then I go and live in Egypt and I'm like, God, you're quite British actually. Like this. So it's, it's been really difficult. And I find that so much of your identity pops up at different times, unexplained. And at times you never thought it would. But for me now, I navigate that by very proudly loving that I am that I'm from so many different places and claiming them very loudly and proudly, regardless of when whether anyone else will give it to me or agree with me. Like I know there's loads of desis who'll be like, "You're not desi." I'm like, "Cool." Like once upon a time, that would have bothered me, but I'm like, "Cool, that's great." Like you can be desi and think I'm not desi and I can be desi and think I'm desi. Like, that's fine. So I'm not as bothered about it as I used to be because I was just like, well, I worried about it for years and it didn't really help. <laughs> like nothing happened as a result of my worrying whether I could claim different identities. So now I just navigate it by seeing the potential. So the potential to exist in so many worlds and be part of changing and contributing to those cultures and those worlds and bringing those different worlds into other spheres, right? So the fact that I, you know, grew up with a white mother who was Irish, like there is privilege there for sure. And it has allowed me my own privileges that has granted me access and incredible education and different things. And with that, I will use that to to step into my Desi world or my, you know, like North African world and you know claim privilege and space for those people and fight for those people so now I'm just like see the opportunity in belonging to so many different places that brings such a lot of richness doesn't it all Mm. of those cultures I think so yeah so many layers and it's so multifaceted and while that is hard to navigate at times I actually just think what I always thought was like, well, I get the best food. Like I have the most phenomenal palate. Like I get incredible curries and salad and java from my grandma. Um, and then I also get incredible food from the Middle East. Like I just, I'm suspect a lot of amazing food. <laughs> That's a, only got to be good, right? Right? It's a win. Mm-hmm. 
some cultures treat food as a functional sort of thing. You get hungry, you eat. Not if you're South Asian. For us, food is a massive part of our culture. We spend a lot of time thinking about food, preparing food, talking about food. It's one of the few things that my brothers and I can talk about. We can talk for hours about the perfect fish curry. Should we use tamarind or tomatoes? Big red grains of Carolyn rice or basmati rice? We send each other photos of the dal and prawn curry we're making for dinner. My earliest food memories are of the Carolyn food that my mother used to make. Uppam's light as air. My mum would flip them off the shiny cast iron pan coated with many years of coconut oil. I tear the pieces off hungrily, dipping it into a spicy red coconut chutney, which was made with red-hot chilies, fragrant garlic and freshly grated coconut. I remember vividly how my mum grated the coconut with this rusty coconut grater. It sort of looked like a medieval instrument of torture with its sharp serrated bits. My mum would sit astride it on the floor, the coconut shell noisily scraping against the metal as she scooped up the coconut flesh. Food is the South Asian language of love. Food is how we show affection. Food is how we express our emotions. I may not always be able to say that I love you, but here's a chicken curry that says it better than words ever can. Could we talk about faith? Yes. Do you have a faith? Yes, I'm Muslim. What does that look like? I'm Muslim, uh, and very proudly so. A lot of the internet wished I wasn't. (laughs) Because I... So my mum was Catholic, and she converted to Islam before me or my brother were born. So I was raised Muslim, I was I have always been Muslim and my family has always been Muslim and my mum is very practicing my father is very practicing they're both very devout individuals we were raised uh, in a really strong mosque community my mother ran like the sister study circle on Thursday my dad would regularly lead the prayers on Friday like we'd be in the mosque and the call to prayer would go and then we would all line up and then I would look over the balcony and be like oh it's my dad leading it today like you know so we were really integrated into that Muslim community it was such a strong part of my childhood years and my young years and so much of that is is in me and I, I adore it and I love it and I really identify with Islam and the teachings of Islam and the morals and the beauty of that religion. Uh, I think a lot of people find it difficult that I do because I'm really open about sex and sexuality and and my body and being semi-naked or nude on, in pictures or online. And they're like, well, how can you be Muslim? Like, how can this be? Um, so I think a lot of people on the internet wished I wasn't, but I am, you know, I say it all the time, that that's fine if you think that, but it's what I believe in and you can't change your faith in a person. And because my mum was a convert, we grew up with a real open dialogue about faith. Like the Bible was in our house. I read the Bible and I read the Quran. Like I read both of these things. I went to church sometimes with my Catholic Irish family. We'd go to mosque every week. We were part of, of lots of different worlds. And because my mum had converted, she hadn't inherited faith. So he- faith is often a 
a hereditary thing, right? We pass it down from mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandmothers. We just keep passing it down. We don't learn it fresh each generation. Uh, we just say, oh, it's just like this because it always has been. Uh, but because my mum converted and stepped into it, and my mother is phenomenally intelligent and had just read everything that she possibly could and studied the scholars and the theology and she'd come at it from a real theological point of view as opposed to oh it's just something we've always done in our family so we were always talking about faith and if I found something in Islam that I didn't understand or I didn't like I would go to my mum and I'd be like well why does it say this like why do we have to do that and then my mum would explain you know where the original hadith had come from or where the teaching had come from and then she would say things like but you know it has been informed by a patriarchal scholarship so let's be wary of that so you know we can take that bit with a pinch of so there were these incredible conversations and dialogues about faith happening and my mum always said to me she said until you're 18 and living in this house, house, you will be Muslim. When you're 18, if you want to choose a different faith, go for it. So it was never like, I'm just Muslim because I always have been. Like I was thinking about my faith and do I want to be another faith? And oh, I quite like going to church actually. Do I want, is that where I find affinity? So I've, you know, peeled it apart and dug it up and played with it. And it's always Islam that I come back to. It's always my identity identity as a Muslim that I come back to. And I think, nope, this is definitely the one for me. This is this is my faith. So I'm I'm really strongly connected to it. And I used to be veiled. I used to wear a headscarf for six years. When was that? I wore hijab. So I started when I uh, got when I like hit puberty, because uh, that was always the deal. My mum said you can wear it if you want, but like when not when you're a child, like when you hit puberty. <laughs> and that was when I was 16 because I was a late bloomer. Um which I look back on and I think, thank God, because it gave me so many period-free years. And I'm so thankful for that. Uh, like I have friends who started when they were like 13 and I'm like, oh God. So I started when I was 16 and I didn't take it off until I was living in Egypt after my degree and after university. And I'd done my master's as well. So I was probably 21, 22 when I took it off. So I was, you know, elbow deep in the faith and still am. And you know, I think faith is a really personal thing. I think it's between you and God and you you two have to have conversations and be okay. Uh, not you in the community. It's it's you, and, it's you and whoever's up there, you know, and I still have that connection. Like I can't hear the call to prayer or hear Quran being recited and not feel something in my heart, like not feel this incredible shift in this sense of peace. And, and I would say, when that stops, like if I don't feel that anymore, then I'll know that it's not there. Uh, but when people are like, oh my God, stop calling yourself Muslim. You're clearly, you're clearly not. I'm like, cool. Well, I know what I feel. Something on um, the um, YouTube video that I saw this morning where you talk about this Western narrative of a singular type of Muslim, mm. the hijab wearing um, terrorist wife kind of Muslim <laughs> running off to ISIS <laughs> running Muslim. off to ISIS yeah. Muslim do you have a view on that? I think those single stories are so incredibly damaging and I've found them incredibly damaging personally and I think single stories don't leave any room for you to be complex or complicated and as humans we are so complicated and we have like we are full of contradictions and we never talk about that enough we never say yes I love my faith but I want to go and get drunk even though my faith says that I shouldn't and those two things exist like I can get drunk and still go to mosque like those things 
if you think they're a conduit, they still exist within one person, right? Um, and we don't talk about that enough. And so when we have these single stories, there's no room to be anything but what you're supposed to be, uh, which has never gone down well in the history of anything, has it? And I think for Muslims, you have the single story from a Western perspective of, you know, you're all going away to run off to ISIS and become a jihadi bride. Uh, and then you have this single story from within the Muslim community where it's like, well, you are, you're a good Muslim and you pray five times a day and you're going to marry a good Muslim man. And then when you deviate from that in any way, then suddenly you're a sinner and you're pushed to the boundaries and there's no space for you to be a good Muslim and not marry a Muslim man, you know? Uh, because if you're not marrying a Muslim man, then clearly you're rejecting your faith and you're going to hell and you're not Muslim. And so we just, we are existing in these huge dichotomies and they just don't work. There's no room to breathe in them. There's no room for humanity and the complexity of our individual natures. So those single stories I have found personally incredibly damaging in the choices that I made and the things that I did. And I think, oh, if I hadn't had these stories hanging over my head, how different things could have been. And I was speaking about this recently in Cairo, actually, I was on a panel with other Muslim women and we were talking about those single stories. And actually, if we hadn't had them, there probably would have been less broken hearts in the world and definitely less women crying on the bathroom floor. You spoke about quite personal things, I think, on that mm. video about the need to kind of, because you'd been told that you only marry a Muslim, yeah. therefore a relationship with a Muslim man that wasn't very good for you in the end. Would you tell me about it? Yeah. So I, um, so in Islam, there is the ruling that a Muslim man can marry a non-Muslim woman, but a Muslim woman cannot marry a non-Muslim man. And we just knew that, like we knew that in the same way we knew the sky was blue. Like we just inherently knew it. You grew up knowing it. So if you were a Muslim woman, you knew that you had to marry a Muslim man. Like there was just no negotiation about it. And there was no conversations in our communities or in our families that said, look, if you do like someone, you know, we can talk to scholars and you can see how you can bring them gently and beautifully into this community and this faith. It was all like so much fire and brimstone and like it's haram, it's haram, it's haram, it's haram, which in Arabic means forbidden, right? So that's, and haram has strong connotations. It's not just like, don't do it. It's like, it's haram. And so I had grown up in that narrative. And at the time I was in university and I was in love with a white Yorkshire guy who didn't come from faith and I was madly in love with him I think he might be the greatest love of my life which is unfortunate but an incredible man and we just had these three years of this incredible relationship and it was my first relationship I'd like lost my virginity to him it was it was so special and it, we just bloomed with each other we just lived in spring basically and it was gorgeous but I always knew in the back of my mind like I can't, we can't end up together. Like I can't be with a non-Muslim man and anyone in our community. And I think there was maybe not even, maybe one example of a woman that we'd grown up with or she'd been like a bit older than us ending up not with a Muslim and she'd married a white guy who wasn't Muslim. We just never heard from her again. She just faded. She just didn't exist in the mosque, in the circles we used to run in. The aunties didn't ask about her in the way they used to ask about all the children and the kids and what they were doing now. She just faded. She, and I was like, I don't want to fade from this. Like, I love this. I love uh, coming to mosque on a Thursday night. Like, that's so into Every Thursday night is mosque night. Like, you know. Uh, 
And I, I was like, well, I, d- I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know how to be with you and you have to convert. And I think towards the end of our relationship, we were probably having conversations about that, but then he didn't know if that was for him. Right. And at the same time, I don't think it's right to ask you to do that for me. And there was part of me that wanted to belong to that community. And if you're going to do it and pretend, then that's not right either. And so I was just like, I can't be with someone who's not Muslim, right? And then we kind of graduated and stayed another year and did masters just to long it out a bit more. And then I moved to Egypt. He moved to Japan for a year. I was going to be in Cairo for a year. And then we were going to come back together and be together in London. And then when I was in Cairo, you know, the relationship just broke down. I was busy trying to be this. I was so, at the time, I was so intent on being like this perfect Muslim, Egyptian, Arab woman. Like I was going to do it. Like I was trying to find my Egyptian identity that I hadn't had access to because I'd grown up as a Desi in Newcastle upon time. And I was like, how do I get to be like this Egyptian person that I know is in my blood? Like I, I must access this somehow. So I'd like skipped off to Egypt and I'm trying to be like the perfect Muslim, Arab, Egyptian woman. And, and I was like, I can't be with this guy. Like you're, your white English guy is not Muslim. Like, how does it work? No one's talked to me about how this works. Um, so we ended up breaking up. And I think, I, well, no, I know I broke his heart and mine, which I later realized the extent of that. And I met an Egyptian guy who was born and raised in, in London. And he was everything on paper that all those aunties at the mosque had said you know you must be with a man like this and he was educated and he was smart and he was also like westernized and I say that in quotation marks because you know as in he he would go out to a club you know but he wouldn't drink like me and because I've never drank so he wouldn't drink either and but he was cool but he was Muslim and he prayed and you know he wanted to be Muslim and Egyptian and but we could still hang out and do all those you know western things and he didn't expect me to be in hijab or at home cooking all the time and I was like oh my god I've actually got the holy grail I literally thought I had the best prize on the planet um I was like I found it like I've won the game this is the game that we're supposed to play and I've I've won it uh so then we were together for two and a half years and he it turned out was incredibly abusive physically mentally verbally pretty pretty nasty guy uh but prayed five times a day and was a great muslim by all accounts. So, you know, and I remember being in that relationship and being like, I've got it. I finally got it. This is what, this is what I'm supposed to have. This is what I'm supposed to do. Um, but he's awful to me and he's incredibly abusive. And, and I was also with a guy previously who wasn't Muslim, but had treated me in the most incredible way, like the way he cared for me and, and I was like, "There's something's not adding up here. Um, and I remember just thinking like, this isn't, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Like this isn't, and at the time I was living in Egypt and you know, you're isolated from your main family and the friends that you know. So it was so easy to slip into something abusive, right? Because all your friends that you're normally surrounded with every day are suddenly not there. So they couldn't, they couldn't suddenly be like, you're changing. You're not. And I lived in Egypt for two and a half years. Do you know what I mean? I was gone. Like I disappeared. And then we eventually moved back and, and, you know, I was, I'd got a job in, in London and moved to London and, and he was just getting progressively worse. Um, and just things like he would say, you know, like we've, we've spoke today, so we don't need to speak for another two days. Why, why are you calling me? And I'd be like, I'm, I'm your girlfriend. Like <laughs> I've been your girlfriend for two years 
like you've met my family like but I'm not allowed to call you because I'm bothering you right so it just it was getting worse and worse and then he he told me he was like oh I'm going to Egypt um for a month and I'm gonna sort my head out and I'm gonna you know figure stuff out and I was like okay but he was like we're not gonna talk in that time we don't, we don't we're not going to talk at all. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I was still trying to be like this supportive, understanding, loving girlfriend who's not a nag or a bother or, you know, there's the patriarchy, right? And so he did and he, he trotted off to Egypt for a month and we didn't talk for a month. And in that time, that was the first time I was like, this is the first time I admitted anything publicly to anyone. And because I was so embarrassed of what happened and so ashamed and you've left a good man. Like you haven't just been single and found this, right? you've been in the most beautiful loving incredible relationship and you're so embarrassed you're like like if I mention my ex's name the white guy everyone's like oh love him <laughs> like my friends knew him he'd been such an integral part of my life like they they were grieving that he wasn't in my life anymore and so I was so embarrassed I was so ashamed and so I didn't tell anyone and then it was only when he like trotted off to Egypt and was like we can't talk I was like hello and I remember I started telling people and I, I told my best friend and I was like, this is not, and he just looked at me and he was like, this isn't right. Like, it's absolutely not right. And then he came back and, and he ended it. And he was like, I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be with you. And I was like, right. <laughs> okay. And then that was the first time I actually told him what a terrible human he was. And he just looked at me and he was like, yeah, I know. Like, I know I've treated you terribly. That's comforting to know that you fucking knew it all along, but you still, he still did it. Um, and then he trotted off and four months later he was married and that was that. And I was like, and I, I, and I probably have been ever since like really angry at the Muslim community, uh, for that single story. Right. Because I think about that single story and everything I did to make that single story come true. And then you're in an abusive relationship and you're like, well, where are you guys now? the ones who said you have to be with a Muslim you have to be with well here I am with one now and he's a monster and you're nowhere to be found belonging a feeling that you're part of a community of a faith of a country I have reached for that sense of belonging over and over again, and never quite found it. I left India to move to the UK about 16 years ago. I've always felt that when you leave your home country, you can never really go back. Because when you move, you lose parts of yourself, and you can't go back to who you were, because that person doesn't exist anymore. And to be honest, even when I lived in India, I didn't entirely belong. My ideas and value systems were a little bit different from the existing narratives of the time. And when I moved to the UK, everything felt different. The regional accents that I didn't understand. The British phrases that I wasn't familiar with. Chuffed, miffed, pissed. All new, all unfamiliar like wearing a new outfit that didn't entirely fit me. Something that I would have to grow into. And now, what now? The India that I left behind 
doesn't even exist. The Britain that I moved to is changing. My two identities, Indian and British, have merged together so seamlessly that I can't see where one begins and the other ends. You form your identity. Mm. Your partners don't form it for you. Your parents don't form it for you. Mm. Your friends don't form it for you. Because what we're told is you're born into this right. and then you become that. Right. Or you live in a country and that's your identity. Exactly. But, but no what, one ever said, oh, you can reach out your hands and you can grab it and you can take it. And it is yours and to make. And it's yours, exactly. And obviously, you know, there's, you get, there's, here is where you have a, a question of appropriation. And yes. I'm not talking about someone from, I don't know, Ghana going to, I don't know, say I'm Chinese, right? Like for no apparent reason or anything like this. No, I'm talking about, you know, you have a hook in those places in one way or another uh, and you don't need to, validate that hook to anyone else and no one else needs to approve that hook that you have you have a hook to that culture and that country you are allowed to claim it and grab it and take it on as your own and and say yes this is mine and this is uh something that i belong to i think that's absolutely beautiful i think more of us need to do it i think definitely more of us need to do that and then there was something else you said which really struck me about when you don't identify exclusively with one culture mm. so with that comes oh who am i where mm. do i belong but also with that comes this facility i think to slip in and out of different cultures yeah and by doing that we're almost a lot richer for it mm. um for me when i go to india i'm like i slip into my skin my indian skin I, yeah. and i don't even it's not even conscious yeah my accent changes the way my body moves changes yeah and when i land in heathrow the reverse happens you know i'm like i'm british now. Yeah. and my you know everything just changes and and that kind of slipping in and out of cultures i value very much mm. because then i'm not foreign ever and i think you talk very beautifully about um belonging to different spaces mm. and connecting with multitudes of people i think is the word you used yeah and what an honor it is actually when i think about it I think what a privilege and i am calling it a privilege now because it's a privilege to be able to shape shift into so many different versions because not everyone can, right? Like I've got white friends who will go to Cairo and they can't shape shift. They, they can't um, laugh at the jokes of Cairo that everyone tells or say the sayings that everyone knows in Cairo and comes with so many meanings. And, you know, they can't have like the hand gestures of an Egyptian, like they just can't shape shift into that. And I think, well, what a privilege like what a fucking privilege that I can um and it's so funny because I just got back from Cairo actually and I made a new friend when I was in Cairo at the conference I was at this incredible guy and uh he's actually visiting London right now and he doesn't live in Cairo he lives somewhere else as well but he's Egyptian and he has the same kind of things as me and it's so funny because he sent me a voice note um so we met in Cairo he only knew me in Cairo and then he sent me a voice mate just voice note just yesterday and I replied and he replied back and he laughed and he was so funny he was like your accent is so much more British now that you're back in London than it was when you were in Cairo like when you were in Cairo you sounded so much more Egyptian like what's happened I didn't even recognize that my accent had changed at all but I do I become more like Egyptian and a bit more dramatic Egyptians are very dramatic um a bit more dramatic than I am which is saying something um and I think actually what an honor that I get to go to Egypt and be like, 
okay, yeah, I'm half, but be so like Egyptian. And then I get back to come to London. I get to come back to London and be way more British, right? And then I'll go to Newcastle and probably a bit of my Northern accent will slip out. Uh, and I'll laugh at the Geordie jokes or I'll sing a Geordie song that everyone from Newcastle knows, right? Um, and then I'll go home with my dad and like all my Desi family and I'll be totally Desi. And I think that is, you suddenly get to lift the curtain and not in the way that foreigners travel, right? Not in the way of like, oh my God, I went on a gap year and I, I went to all of these places and I saw like the Taj Mahal and I saw the pyramids. And I, No, you get to lift that curtain proper and you get to step in that world and understand the rhythms of it in a way that a tourist never does. And you get to dance to those rhythms, right? Think about how many different songs you get to be a part of and how incredible that is. And I always just think that is a privilege. And it's about reframing the conversation in that way instead of being like, oh my God, I'm torn between here and here and I'm always pulled in so many different directions and I just don't know. Actually, I get to dance to so many different tunes and what a fucking privilege that is that I get the insights and the behind the scenes and the secret look-ins and the jokes and the in-jokes and it is just an absolute honour and maybe we all need to start talking about it in that way a little bit more because then maybe we'd feel a little bit less torn. And a little less alone. And a little less alone, yeah. Thank you so much, Selma. Thank you. For taking the time, for being as open and lovely and vulnerable and honest as you've been. And for feeding me cake. Always. Obviously, that's the top Always. of the list. That is. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Hannah Walker-Brown, opening music, by Sonny Robertson.